bison wallow. And if you haven't ever seen a picture of bison wallowing, I highly recommend that you find a picture of them wallowing. It looks so weird. Bison are these gigantic, you know, multiple ton animals. And when they wallow, their legs look so tiny that it's almost like it looks like a photo that the proportions are off. So check that out sometime. <laughs> Definitely. Welcome to From the Field, a podcast logging real-life scientists and their efforts to improve the world one study at a time. I'm Priya Shelley. Friends of Nachusa Grasslands is a conservancy in north-central Illinois. It's about a two-hour drive west of Chicago. They're focused on restoring 3,600 acres of tall grass prairie and introduced a small herd of bison to the landscape in October of 2014. In this episode, I speak with a scientist who witnessed the reintroduction of the herd and who monitors the herd's growth within the restored prairie ecosystem. My name is Holly Jones, and I'm an assistant professor at Northern Illinois University. My focus is on restoration ecology and conservation biology. One of the, I guess, most serendipitous things of my career that I started at NIU just two years before these bison were going to be reintroduced. One of those places was Wind Cave National Park. They had this herd of bison. What was unique about these bison compared to a lot of the bison that people see out in the world today is that they're a genetically pure line of bison. Many of the bison out in the world today actually have um, cattle genetics. We're actually interbred with cattle to create beefalo. What ranchers really wanted was a cow-type meat that stood up to really intense winters. The Wind Cave National Park line is genetically pure, and that's the, um, that's the line of bison that's been reintroduced out to Nachusa. When I first stepped foot at Nachusa, the project director, Bill Kleiman, took me around and showed me all these different places where the Nature Conservancy had been restoring prairie. And he told me that they were really hoping and getting very serious about reintroducing bison out on the landscape. And that's when I knew I really needed to start collecting some data <laughs> so that we had data for what this place looked like before bison were reintroduced out, um, out onto the landscape. Holly knew that this was a special moment. I vividly remember the first time I saw bison grazing at Nachusa. Sunrises, you know, in the Midwest and especially in the prairie Midwest are incredible because you can see basically for miles and so the sky is already incredibly beautiful. And when we pulled up, we just see, you know, bison, basically the, the silhouette of bison. It is like the most American sort of landscape you can witness when you have these bison surrounded by prairie, these huge, majestic, charismatic creatures. It's, there's, there's nothing like it.
Holly didn't always know that she would be on the forefront of restoration ecology. She started by following her passion for being outside. I grew up in Iowa. I was always interested in the outdoors. My great-grandparents both owned a farm, and I spent a lot of time out there learning to fish with my great-grandpa and my grandma. And I was really, really interested in science. And when I got into high school, I had taken so much science that I'd taken all the science that my high school had to offer. There was this vocational school in Iowa that was uh, that offered a marine biology class. So I was trained to scuba dive in a pool in Iowa, and I did my first open water dive in Gray's Lake, which had the visibility of about, uh, I don't know, four inches. <laughs> and, and then uh, as part of that class, we got to go down to Florida and go scuba diving um, for spring break. And the professor for that class, her name was Dr. Stiles, and she was this really intelligent lady, and we went down to Florida, and we walked along the beaches with her and went diving with her. She knew everything. She could identify every single thing on the beach, every single fish underwater and invertebrate underwater, and I was just astounded by that knowledge, and I really was was excited about the potential of, of having such knowledge and being able to give it to other people as I got older. Iowa, despite having that vocational class, doesn't have a whole lot of marine biology, so... I went to um, the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I double majored in marine biology and ecology and evolution. I really thought that I would do marine biology forever. And then I met this uh, professor. He uh, was the co-founder of this nonprofit called Island Conservation. And and so I did really, really well in his class. And he invited me to to work for his nonprofit called Island Conservation. And that's where um, that sort of changed my, my life's trajectory. So I got out of the water and went onto islands. So even though islands <laughs> are surrounded by island, by water, I was more in the terrestrial realm. Slowly yeah. evolving to the land. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's like, it's like my own, my own personal story of evolution. I just came out of the water and started crawling on the land for a little while. The coolest part of my job is to be able to build the base of, of science or the scientific evidence to help us better preserve the species that aren't doing so well and try to figure out how we can restore the environments that we've, we've damaged. For the most part, I'm super hopeful. Hang, I'm sorry, can you hang on one second? Yep. Sorry. Oh, don't even worry about Children. it. <laughs> this, is, this is real life. <laughs> that, that is real life. <laughs> This is one of the first studies to my knowledge that looks at bison impacts in restored prairie. And that's really important because prairies change a lot through their time since restoration. So prairies two years after restoration are completely different from those 25 years after restoration in their plant composition and also in, in the biodiversity they can support. I think that's what's really unique about this study. It's giving us a window into what happens in restored prairie in places where plants are already proceeding through this successional process. What happens when we reintroduce these grazers? Because that's certainly not 
necessarily how um, prairies evolved to begin with. So we didn't have prairies of different ages back when, when prairies evolved. They just all evolved together with bison. So it'll be really interesting to see what ends up coming of the results and what differences we find in these restored prairies versus what we know to be true in areas that haven't been plowed before. Today's restored tallgrass prairie still pales in comparison from when bison first roamed the lands of North America. So back in the day, Illinois looked like a tallgrass prairie, and the prairie was so tall that you wouldn't have been able to see said bison. That's what Illinois used to look like until um, a lot of the European settlers started realizing that this was an area of really high productive soils, our prairies started to be converted to those farms. The reason why we have such productive soils is not only um, for reasons of geology and glaciation, depositing a lot of rich soils, but also because tallgrass prairie, even though it's really tall up above ground, so tall that sometimes you can't see a bison, below ground it's even taller. So the root systems of prairie plants are incredible, incredibly deep. 10 to 15 feet deep in some cases. And so with those rich roots, it created a bunch of rich soil that was really good for agricultural crops. But as more and more settlers arrived, they began hunting bison, not only for food, but it was actually also to drive Native Americans' main food sources down in order to um, to push Native Americans out of the land that they wanted. And so by the late 1800s, bison were hunted to near extinction. Despite the near disappearance of the entire prairie ecosystem, a small piece managed to keep its roots planted and was discovered about 30 years ago. The story of how Natchusa came about is, is such a, 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 a cool one. There was this husband-wife naturalist um, powerhouse couple, and their names were Doug and Dot Wade. And they were really well known throughout the Midwest, especially because they were a big part in the prairie restoration movement. So everyone had realized that most of the prairies were gone. So Doug and Dot Wade were driving through what's now Natchusa and what was then fields of corn and beans, similar to what most of Illinois still is. And they were driving along and their windows were down and they heard the call of the upland sandpiper. The upland sandpiper is this iconic prairie species. It's only found in prairies. And so Doug and Dot immediately got out of their car and started poking around in the fields. And they walked around and walked around until they found this small knob of prairie. And by knob, I mean this sort of high rocky area that hadn't been plowed. And they started to see some really cool plants that were prairie obligate species, so those that are only found on prairies. And they told the Nature Conservancy about it, and the Nature Conservancy is this nonprofit um, that's dedicated to preserving nature. And the Nature Conservancy bought the then thousand acre plot of land just 15 minutes before it was set to go to auction as five acre housing plots with street names like Big Blue Stem and Indian Grass, which are prairie plants. 
So two of the remnants out at Nachusa now are named after Doug and Dot, and it's just this wonderful story of, of two people making what's now a gigantic difference. Add bison to the mix, and a dramatic shift begins to occur. Bison are what scientists call ecosystem engineers, meaning um, they make a big impact on the ecosystem and change it really significantly from what it is when we don't have bison. And when they wallow, which is basically means they lie on the ground and rub their bodies all around and create big, big open patches of bare ground, the ecosystem consequences of this wallowing, which we think they do to um, itch and to get parasites off of them, are really pro- profound. So, you know, in an area that normally has six foot tall grasses, you have complete bare ground. And these can be really big depressions. And in the spring, they can fill up with water and they become ephemeral ponds and breeding grounds for amphibians and invertebrates that wouldn't normally be there. Also, because of this disturbance out on the landscape, there's a new niche for new plants to to come back up as well. You know, bison are sort of wandering fertilizer and nutrient cyclers as well. So they, you know, walk all over and produce really nice nutrient deposits that my team and I step on all the time uh, out on the landscape, increase nitrogen cycling, which can be really important for plant growth. The other thing that we know is that with their grazing, um, there's often higher productivity, and that means just more plants growing and more plants growing, more biomass. Prairies are carbon sponges, so they soak up carbon, which is obviously really important in the age of climate change, where carbon is one of the biggest, carbon dioxide and other forms of carbon are some of the biggest greenhouse gases that we have to worry about. So prairies suck up that carbon and they often hold it down in their really deep roots. And so bison grazing can actually increase that process of carbon sequestration. The other thing they do is just create a more mixed environment. And that's really important because some um, animals, like some, let's take birds for example, some birds like the upland sandpiper I was talking about, they really like short grass. And if you don't have grazers out on the landscape, you don't have any habitat then for upland sandpipers and other birds really like tall grasses and dense plants and if you don't have both short and tall grasses out on the landscape you can't support a wide diversity of of grassland birds to keep track of the ever-growing ecosystem holly uses the help of drones to monitor these changes It's incredible the richness of data that we can get by flying this drone, and in such a short time. With a drone, it took us two weeks to fly the entire preserve. The preserve is 3,600 acres, so it's a really big area. And there's no way that we could quantify um, productivity and plant growth in every single bit of that preserve by doing on-the-ground work. But my eyes in the sky can help us do some quantifying of the vegetation community, of productivity. We can look at where bison are grazing because it can detect grazing lawns. We can look, we can build 3D models of the vegetation out there, all in in two weeks of, of work. 
you know, drones definitely have the potential to do to do bad, but for science, they're doing a, a lot of good. They're really important as as we study climate change because I can compare. I'm going to fly this, you know, the preserve every year, and I can compare things like productivity, carbon cycling, what the plants are doing on years where we have big droughts and on years where we don't. And I can then look at what the climate scientists are telling about telling us about what's going to happen in the future and predict then how the prairie is going to respond. So it's a really, really important tool and one I'm really excited to, to get to use out there. Within these small pockets of resurgence, Holly sees a glimmer of hope for the United States to reconnect with its natural beauty and resources. I think it's really easy to lose hope in today's day and age because of all the bad ways that humans have impacted ecosystems. But there are a few things that certainly bring me hope and I hope bring other people hope too. The first thing is that if if we're talking about agriculture, which tends to be one of the biggest causes of biodiversity loss and the loss of ecosystems, we're actually getting better and better at growing more food on smaller amounts of land. So there's there's actually a trend towards agricultural and abandonment of lands. And those lands that are no longer fields when they used to be fields are these prime areas for restoration. So people should be really hopeful about that. And, you know, here in in Illinois with prairie restoration, you know, yeah, we've lost 99.99% of our prairies. But there are people working day in and day out to restore those lands. And, and so, yeah, it's easy to, to get down on people that we've, you know, really damaged the environment. But people are also the only creatures on Earth that actually have the capacity to restore the ecosystems that, that we've damaged. And, and this is happening, you know, at big scales all over the globe. We spend billions of dollars a year trying to restore different parts of the ecosystem. I wish we didn't have to, but the fact that we are doing that should definitely bring people hope. You know, restoration is still in its infancy. We just got our first textbook, you know, in the in the 1990s. So we have we still have a lot to learn. It's really new. And so it's a really inspiring time, a great time to be, you know, out there in restoration and even if even if people aren't interested in science, they can go out there and get their hands dirty. So yeah, I encourage people and especially the students I teach to um, to understand that they have agency in what's happening in the world and to you know go lend a helping hand and to don't to don't despair. Um, go out and pick up a shovel. <laughs> On the next episode of From the Field. Timber theft is very lucrative. They have estimated between 30 and 100 billion dollars annually are lost because of illegally harvested and traded timber. 15 to 30 percent of the wood in the world is traded illegally. From the Field is written and recorded by me, your host, Priya Shelley. Editing and sound design by Danush Parvana. Final mix by Andy Stein. Original score by Dylan Gladhorn and artwork by Atea Nujicharis. Special thanks to our guest, Holly Jones. If you enjoyed this episode of From the Field or have something to say, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and please visit fromthefieldpodcast.com for photos, show notes, guest links, and more.